My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames Cast. Happy New Year to you all. Um, I've decided this year to really try and up the ante on the podcasting front. My aim is to get to 100 episodes this year, so I'm going to be putting out a lot more episodes where I just do kind of reviews of what I've been seeing. There'll be longer form episodes. Um, I've got something in the works on The Third Man, which is looking at to be about two hours long. Um, and just really trying to hammer it. I'm soon to be out of work, actually, so that's part of the motivation. So um, I'm going to kick things off um, this year with a review of a couple of films that I've watched, uh, Hostiles and Darkest Hour. There will be a review of 2017 coming in a couple of weeks. I'm just re-watching some of the films that are in my top 10 just to kind of uh, formulate my ideas on them. But I'm going to um, wade straight into it with a look at Hostiles. I don't know how you've done all these years. Seeing all the things you've seen, doing all the things you've done. Makes you feel inhuman after a while. Captain, you do know Chief Yellowhawk. The Army wants to be certain that the Chief gets home to Montana safely without incident. I have any idea what he's done. He's a butcher. And the two of you ought to get along just fine. I've killed savages, because that's my job. You have no idea what war it does to men. I hate them. I've got a war bag of reasons to hate them. This will be done, and it will be done by you. Parade's over. Put them in chains. Believe in the Lord, Joseph. Yes, I do. But he's been blind to what's going on out here for a long time. Now, as a genre, I would contest there is nothing more culturally effective in any society than what the Western is for America. From the very birth of cinema, it has been a uniquely American genre, and along the way has reflected and explored the changing attitudes and cultural climate of the country. From the wild bunch through to Unforgiven to the Hateful Eight, the Western has been revised, refreshed and repackaged many times. Directors and writers have smuggled in themes about violence, repression, guilt and greed. And for around 60 years, the genre has been going through the revisionist area. Audiences became too cynical to simply accept the idea of good guys versus the bad guys, and in due course the Western hero became a more complex, more angst-driven vehicle to explore myths of the West and male anxiety. The Western has also dealt with one of the thorniest issues in American history, that of race. You could simply not have made a film like Stagecoach from any time from the mid-60s and not been called a grotesque racist. Yet from the vantage point of film nostalgia, we can politely accept its racial politics under the guise of a greater perspective that it was John Wayne's debut and recognise his place in film history, if not a cultural history, that we are comfortable with. I for one do not have an issue with dubious racial politics and stereotypes in older films, and yes I concede that may seem a tad cold-hearted, but appreciating a film like Skate Coach is not a wider endorsement of its politics, and neither should you be judged for liking it. So of course it stands to reason that the Western today will serve as a cipher for all the modern day anxieties the culture has with grappling with the complexities of historical revisionism and identity politics. How do we deal with a past that we are not comfortable with? 
do you leave a street named after a slave trader? Do you leave statues to Confederate war heroes up? It's a tough question and one I can understand arguments on both sides. Should the past be erased or should it be studied, re-evaluated and learned from, or a mixture of both? Certainly at present, I don't believe we have a society that is fully aware of what it actually wants to do and how to behave in this regard. But one thing is for sure, I've been expecting a lot, to a large degree a cycle of films that place identity and racial politics at their core, and this expectation has also been tempered with a fair amount of dread. Enter Scott Cooper's latest film, Hostiles. A western set in New Mexico in 1892, the frontier wars were slowly coming to end, and our film begins on the homestead. Rosamund Pike plays Rosaline, a wife and mother, who we see teaching her two daughters grammar whilst her newborn baby sleeps and her husband chops wood. It's picture-perfect America, mountains and rolling grass and hills. Yet we know something is afoot when the camera cuts to one of the most well-worn and iconic shots in all of cinema. And of course, that is the doorway shot. It can mean so much the separation of exterior and interior, representing a far greater threshold beyond. In this case, safety and danger civilization and lawlessness because on the horizon comes an attack from Comanche Indians. No attempt is made to reason with them. The reaction of Rosaline and her husband is instant. In fear, Rosaline grabs the baby and tells her daughters to run whilst husband begins to shoot at the fast approaching war party. Next we see a horrific attack. Husband is scalped, the daughters gunned down and the baby shot in Rosaline's arm as she hides in the forest. We then see a quote from D.H. Lawrence as the screen fades to black. The essential American soul is hard, isolate, storic, and a killer. And it pretty much sets the mood for what is to follow. Next we meet Blocker, played by Christian Bell, an American army captain, impressive, impassively watching the torture of a captured Indian and overseeing him imprisoned at a nearby army fort. From his language and interaction with a trusted Master Sergeant Metz, played by Rory Cochran, we quickly learn Blocker is a particularly violent killer of Indians. He has a hundred reasons for wanting to kill the savages he claims, and has more scalps than Sitting Bull himself. Close to retirement, he is instructed by none other than the President to escort his greatest enemy, Yellow Hawk, played by Wes Studdy, to Montana so he can die in his homelands from the cancer that is eating him alive. Blocker initially refuses. However, the threat to his pension soon sees him fall into line and sets off, not before placing Yellowhawk and his family in chains, and on the whole treating them rather badly. And it's not long before we come across Rosaline, in the charred ruins of her homestead, initially scared and frightened of Yellowhawk and his family. They are, after all, the enemy, are they not? This motley band has a few hundred miles to bond, and possibly everyone on this trip can come to terms with their own prejudice. What could possibly happen? Well, I will begin with what I loved about Hostiles. The film is suitably stunning. The landscapes are truly awe-inspiring, with a wonderful sparsest to the military forts. I'm currently watching Ken Burns' produced TV series, The West, and the imagery at times was indistinguishable from the stills from that series. Director of photography, Manasobu Takayangi, will surely be on the Oscar shortlist. Hostiles is a widescreen film in the truest sense and was filmed on 35mm Kodak film stock that gives it that unmissable textured look. It feels epic and Cooper seemingly cannot get enough of showing the party crossing the hills at sunset and who can blame him for indulging on such cinematic moments. 
Hostiles is also an extremely violent film, however never felt it was gratuitous. The violence is brief, scary and bloody. You felt that the people being shot actually look like they are in pain and where necessary kills but there was nothing sanitised about it. Hostiles more than lived up to its name. The West it presents is a terrifyingly violent place, a cruel juxtaposition of stunning landscapes and brutal hard violence. I genuinely felt scared at times for these characters. Universally, the performance is a top-notch as well. It's a particularly humorless film and most of the characters spend time in reflective, melancholy form. And there is something then, which is something of the trope of the revisionist Western. These are deeply disturbed, troubled individuals whose absolution of past crimes is a driving force of the narrative. It is here though, Hostiles began to unravel for me, including what I consider to be one of the most frankly ridiculous final half hours of any film I have seen in recent memory. It is a particularly well-meaning piece of cinema, yet it feels that it's trying to speak universally for the collective white guilt of the treatment of Native American Indians. It comes across as preachy and to a degree rather smug. My main issue comes in the film and how it actually treats its Native American characters. Yellow Cork and his family are painfully pious and dignified throughout. They are not characters such, but ciphers being used to extol the virtues of their own culture and everything that is evil about white civilization. Hostiles, in a sense, is trying to sanctify the Native Americans, largely ignores them as actual individuals. We hardly spend any time learning about what they actually know or seeing them in the film in a proactive way, which I would contest kind of misses the point somehow. This is not a progressive film in the least. Its message is simple. White people are history's villains. Yet Hostiles seems fairly fails to realise we have been here before, many, many times before, and it has now got rather boring. Its worthiness is ultimately its greatest hindrance, with some of the lines seemingly have been written at the behest of an organisation such as the Southern Poverty Law Centre or Oxfam. In one scene, the wife of a colonel whom they are staying with literally says words to the effect of, look what we have done to these people. It does rather set an uncomfortable moral quandary. The violence we see is circular, the Native American Indians massacre white people, white people massacre the Indians, yet of course it's the whites who have committed the original sin here. And it is this premise the film simply cannot rid itself off. Both Blocker and Yellowhawk have committed terrible crimes, it is only Blocker who is given any screen time to actually show what effect this has had on him. We know Blocker was previously a monster, and to highlight it even more we have another character thrown into the mix in the form of a US soldier. The trooper asked to escort to a court-martial where he is to face trial for butchering a native family. Of course, in another life, this could be Blocker, and this is made explicitly clear. But that's the point. The journey has changed Blocker. He now sees the way of his ills, and through him we can see our wrongs. Because if by this point we haven't grasped, we are the monsters here. And yes, I mean white people. After a series of idiotic events, we eventually plod towards the film's most eye-rolling moment. Dying, Yellowhawk looks onto his homeland. He has a new best friend, Blocker, who after saying the names of those Yellowhawk killed, clutches his hand and unites white man and native Indian by saying a piece of him will die with Yellowhawk also. Oh please. It's well-meaning, but it felt strangely hollow to me given how the whole the film is such a squandered opportunity to actually do something with Native American characters that is rarely seen and done, and is that is actually to spend time with them. 
dances with wolves does it quite superbly but the western is largely the genre of the white man and the film's actual ending was somewhat confused as to what it's actually supposed to say obviously through a white man instigated massacre only one native american boy gets to the end of the film Rosaline is clearly going to adopt him and the child is dressed in a waistcoat and a tie and is in fact looking like a white man. Blocker gives him a book written in Latin that the child takes and I wondered how much of his own culture this child will learn about, what stories of his ancestors will he hear about or will Rosaline teach him English and presumably see him converted to Christianity effectively culturally cleansing him of his own way. Is In this we have a real genocide perhaps is the film telling us this is the real the real crime that's being committed and I actually don't think the film is making this point I think we are supposed to take comfort from the fact that Rosaline to a small degree is going to have a second chance at motherhood and she is being cleansed of the prejudice by taking this child through life and again I don't think this is progressive or revisionist I'm not for a second suggesting that what has been committed against Native American peoples is anything less than dreadful. Yet to me, Hostile shows that this form of guilt does not make for good cinema. It's an apology for a film. And we've been here too many times before. It squanders its interesting premise by presenting a one-dimensional view on history. If the Native American Indians are the victims, here we have to give they are given little opportunity to actually hear their voice. Moreover, we are there to fill their suffering, and at just over two hours, sadly Hostiles is justifiably gloomy and ultimately rather dull retread of revisionist Western cliches. We are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history. Mr. Winston Churchill, you have an enormous task ahead of you. Winston lacks judgment. He's a bully. We may have to replace him. All our forces are in Dunkirk. The Germans are pushing us into the sea. You have the full weight of the world on your shoulders. Are you not afraid? Most terribly. I speak to you for the first time as Prime Minister in a solemn hour for the life of our country. You ask, what is our policy? I say it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might. We shall never surrender! So it's that time of year known as award seasons, which means we get the annual slew of contenders tarting for the top gongs. Joe Wright's Darkest Hour is gaining significant buzz as the year we finally see Gary Oldman be crowned Best Actor at the Oscars. His has been an interesting and diverse career, a working class actor from London. Oldman does not have the ravishing good looks one commonly associates with a leading man, yet lead he has from Sid and Nancy to the quite brilliant Tinker Tailor told soldier spy as the erstwhile British spy George Smiley. It is his supporting roles that have most stood out for me. His maniacal laugh in Dracula and whatever it is those pills do to him in Leon or Sirius Black in the Harry Potter films, and my particular favourite, Mason Verger in Hannibal. He has also courted controversy over the years, 
defending Mel Gibson. You know, that Mel Gibson who claims the Jews run everything and hopes his ex-partner gets raped by a pack of niggers. Because, come on, it was all just a joke and everyone needs to lighten up. Well, that's according to Gary anyway. But all that being said, he is a tremendous actor. And with Darkest Hour being heralded by many as his crowning achievement to date, and certainly I, for one, was somewhat amazed when I saw the publicity shots for Oldman in costume, as well as the fact it was being filmed in where I actually worked, so I was naturally very interested in the film. Now Churchill is a particular favourite of mine in history. I can recommend Roy Jenkinson's biography that paints an extraordinary character, and in my mind the greatest Briton who has ever lived. Flawed, yes, but Churchill was a man Britain needed in its titular darkest hour. Now, Joe Wright's films has met with almost universal critical praise, which quite frankly has surprised me, as I was not a fan of this film at all, and I rather think the reason it is people are going on about it so much is in terms of Oldman's performance and not to do with the film as a whole. Now if I were to make a list of British period drama cliches, it would consist of some of the following. Food being prepared in a montage that is designed to show the excess of the person who it is being delivered to. Stuffy butlers and maids running around in a frenzy over something utterly trivial that indicates their master is a pernickety pain in the ass. Jaunty generic music to emphasise the tweeness of everything. A sequence showing a fish out of water, normally a woman, being shown through in a foreign environment to her whilst the rules are barked at her as she stares in bewilderment at the wonderful things she is being introduced to before being snapped back into reality by her guide, repeating her name. A scene in which the pernickety old man reveals his softer side, normally in the company of his beloved darling wife. Endless shots of people walking through buildings, things being stamped. Now, Darkest Hour includes all of the above, with the added annoyance of not being altogether particularly exciting. Focusing on the period when Churchill came to power and the ensuing Dunkirk crisis, Darkest Hour lacks an urgency one would expect from such a scenario. The real drama of the film tries to mind is that of the inner party backbiting that's going on around him. Is he the right man to lead the country and should Lord Halifax pursue a peace plan with the Italians? Running parallel to this is the intimate fall of Europe to a marauding horde of Nazis. I was reminded of the computer game series Mass Effect, in which you play a human desperately trying to stop the galaxy from being overrun by an alien mob. The game was immense fun, but rather hindered by some side missions that seemed somewhat trivial to the overall crisis unfolding. One would spend a good hour helping an alien retrieve a goldfish, or reuniting a lost child with its mother. Now, Darkest Hour feels like an extension of this. It makes for some interesting exchanges between characters. Lord Halifax and Churchill's increasingly fraught encounters highlight some of the lesser moments in Churchill's career, but ultimately it all seems massively contrived. The film makes a very big point of reminding us that time is of the essence. The British Expeditionary Force is holed up on the Dunkirk beaches, the Germans about to strike at any moment. So what better way to spend five minutes than the King and Churchill having lunch talking about their families? Now, Ben Mandelson as George VI was, I really genuinely thought, one of the best supporting performances in the entire film, and I've certainly really liked his work since Rogue One, but Darkest Hour revels in showing Churchill going about his daily routine, 
dictating letters, writing those iconic speeches. But once you have seen him dictating a letter once, it does become rather dull, and after the second time and the third time, somewhat excruciating. The film shines when it gets to the business in hand, i.e. the war. One of the best examples of this is when we see a scene between Churchill when he calls President Roosevelt to try and hurry up an order to get some planes they bought with the money they borrowed from the Americans, Churchill deadpans. It's a brilliant scene. Churchill negotiating the planes release while his country is teetering on the brink of invasion and it's wonderfully played. Oldman captures the state of Churchill spent so much of his life in, i.e. indebted to others but not afraid to get in the trenches and do the hard work. The ridiculousness of the situation presented by Roosevelt is both funny and also utterly terrifying, with Winston holding the phone away in complete bafflement as to what is unfolding. Yet far too often, Darkest Hour loses track of the crisis, losing impetus to scenes that are frankly there only to showcase the fact that the film wants you to show a softer side of Churchill. His love of his wife Clementine, played by Christian Scott Thomas, his compassion for his secretary Elizabeth, played by Lily James. It's all rather sweet and no doubt Churchill had his moments of tenderness, yet Darkest Hour lost valuable traction during these moments. One could argue without them, Churchill would be less sympathetic creation in the film. I would contest they are contrived and distracting. The film entered a realm of the cringeworthy when Churchill decides to take an impromptu trip along the tube. Coming face to face with the public, he conducts an impromptu referendum on the will of the British people who unflinchingly demand he continue the war and never surrender. The scene is so awful, so heavy handed and so thoroughly ridiculous I was squirming in my seat with embarrassment. I felt like Joe Wright was begging us to like Churchill by repurposing as a man of the people when in reality he was a man for the people who believed it was his destiny to lead the country when it needed him most. Wright's direction was also distracting. For example, in the Houses of Parliament, he chooses to have events unfold in near darkness with a single shaft of sunlight illuminating the Prime Minister's position. A similar style is used for shots inside Buckingham Palace and I found it to be slightly annoying as I became so consciously aware of it and was questioning why he had opted to do it. Was it symbolic or was it simply for style's sake? Either way, I thought it was a poor stylistic choice giving the film an overly staged feel. And I also felt that Darkest Hour was not making use of its location particularly effectively. Despite taking place in a supposedly nail-biting situation, there is little in the way of urgency or claustrophobia to the scenes in the cabinet war rooms or the tunnels in the white cliffs of Dover. There is one scene in which everyone is calmly sat around watching a film showing Hitler and a footage of German marine assault assaulting beaches while a general gives a talk on how they invade after Dunkirk. And I began to think, really, would they really be doing this? No, they would be on the phone to the generals as Dunkirk was unfolding. Was the line holding how many troops were off the beach? And the flow of the film is broken, and I would contest Darkest Hour is largely a confused film as to what it's actually trying to do. It is, it is a lot of one thing or another. On the one hand, we're seeing a different side to Churchill, yet this is juxtaposed with an absolute crisis that unfolding, and it seemed wayward and distracting with unnecessary subplots and scenes. But considering this is apparently Oldman's finest hour, it seems we should only talk about his performance for a little bit. Now certainly, there is no doubt, as I've said before, that the prosthetics 
transformation in him is incredible. I first saw the publicity sales and had no idea it was actually him. But this really doesn't mean very much because it's the performance that matters most. And of course, there is a degree of theatric to Oldman's Churchill. He bellows loudly when things are not done properly. He fawns over Clementine and sheds the odd tear here and there. And I can see why this seduced Academy voters. It's an actor's performance for sure. It, is it a great performance though? Well, no, I don't think so. The screenplay helps Oldman, but I don't think for a moment that he reaches far into the soul of Churchill. Mannerisms do not equate for insight. Oldman adds a different delivery to Churchill's most famous speeches. Certain words here and there are given emphasis and the delivery is faster and possibly more aggressive. But rousing they are not, and I found the film to be hugely anticlimactic. The Dunkirk evacuation is reduced to a side note, and the real ending seems to be when the whole house comes to cheer Winston on. It does have its moments, but I think Wright has chosen the wrong story here. This should be a taut, claustrophobic affair, instead much of it feels like padding and a misguided insistence on showing us this different side to Churchill. It is a fine performance for sure from Oldman, but it's typical award season fair, and I don't mean that in a good way. So that's going to be it for this episode. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I will be back in a couple of weeks with a look at 2017. I've also put an episode out on the Masters of Cinema cast feed, and we'll be looking at the film Silence, so go to go and check us out over there. In the interim, I will speak to you very soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>